Have your Bibles and you'll join me in Exodus chapter 34 as we continue our study through Exodus together. As we come to the 34th chapter, we find ourselves really at a somewhat of a turning point for the nation of Israel. If you remember in the prior chapters, the nation of Israel had really sunk to a very low point spiritually in their relationship with God. Remember Moses having been on the mountain for 40 days there in the presence of God, receiving uh, instruction regarding the law and the construction and the instructions for the tabernacle and the worship system and the priesthood and the sacrificial system, these type of things, coming back down, finding the people in their impatience, having erected for themselves that golden calf and having this idolatrous and and lewd uh, worship service really toward this golden calf and just really conducting themselves in a way that was dishonoring to God, a real affront to the Lord. And God's wrath was righteously aroused and he should have justly punished them. In fact, he could have ultimately just destroyed them and done away with them. And yet remember Moses having seen this no doubt being prompted by God's heart and God's spirit at work within him begins to plead and to intercede for the people that God would have mercy upon them, that he would forgive them, that his presence wouldn't depart from them, but that he would remain with them and continue to uh, move among them. Uh, and, and at this point, really, as we come to chapter 34, uh, as Moses, after praying and seeking the Lord and hearing God say that he would indeed continue uh, to move in their midst, having just pleaded, God, let me see your glory. I just, it's all I desire. I just, Moses, unlike the people who wanted to push away the presence of God from their midst, was one among them who deeply longed to see God, to know God. He had a heart to want to see the, the Lord in every part of who he was. And he had just cried out to the Lord in the end of chapter 33, Lord, let me see your glory. Just please, I want to see more of who you are. I want to see everything about your greatness possible that you will ever allow me to be able to see. And as we come to chapter 34, we now find the Lord really on the heels of those things renewing the covenant for the nation of Israel. And in some ways, it's somewhat of an encouragement because at a time when the nation had sunk to an all-time low, when spiritually they had declined and rebelled against God and turned away from God, and really, truly, we see in our text that the wrath of God was looming over the nation because of what they had done spiritually and morally and their behaviors and their attitude towards God and their rebellion, when the wrath of God was looming over the nation, here this one man intercedes and pleads for God's mercy and that he would remain with them rather than abandoning them and departing from them. And God here, in a tremendous act of gracious response and forgiveness and love, now, in a sense, uh, renews the covenant that he had made with the people of Israel rather than just washing his hands of them and doing away from them. And, and as we look at God renewing the covenant here in chapter 34, it's a great reminder for us that God desires, I believe, to have mercy upon nations and upon people who, despite how low they may sink, may be willing to still cry out to him in forgiveness and to seek the Lord for an awakening and a revival, a renewal, that, that, that there is hope for those who will turn to him in that way. Again, we, we know the familiar verse, many of us have heard it before, where God says, if my people who are called by my name 
would humble themselves and pray and turn from their wicked ways. God said, I'll hear from, I'll hear from heaven and I will heal their land. And, and I bring that to your attention this evening because really, I, I think we need to hold on to some form of hope for our own nation. And there's so many ways when we read the word of God, it is so true that we can find a lot of parallels between the nation of Israel and the United States of America how God established them and blessed them. And it was only because of his blessing upon them that made them a great and a strong nation. And yet how they turned away from God and suffered the consequences of deterioration morally and militarily and spiritually and in so many ways that we can look and say, wow, what tremendous parallels to what we're experiencing in our nation. But listen, we need to be careful that we don't come to a place where we're just so disheartened or so disgusted. And I'll be the first to say with our own nation where we just think there's no hope anymore for America. We deserve the judgment of God and therefore just, just go ahead and, and, and bring it, Lord. When the reality is, is that God may choose to bring one last revival among our nation and seek to do something wonderful among our own nation if we were willing to perhaps stand strong for him and intercede for our nation and perhaps have hope that God may choose yet still to be gracious to us and that he stood, could still do something among our own nation despite its condition that it's in. Here God does it for Israel. And again, the Bible that we read tells us that God declares in Malachi, I, the Lord God, change not. So the same God that did this historically certainly uh, can do this as well. I think to some extent for any nation that would be willing to intercede and seek his mercy and forgiveness that God longs. He wants to restore. He, he, he wants to give second chances and third chances and fourth chances and a hundred and fourth chances, whether it's the individuals or whether it's the nations. And we find in chapter 34 really an illustration of that as after this tremendous failure that they've just gone through with the idolatry of the golden calf and the immorality and some 3,000 souls died as a result of the sin among the camp in that day and Moses broke the commandments as he came down symbolically because they had violated God's word so severely God now here in answer to Moses' prayer and intercession and a measure just a measure of humility among the people in repentance he now is renewing the covenant here in the 34th chapter so chapter 34 verse 1 begins by saying and the Lord said to Moses notice cut two tablets of stone like the first ones and I will write on these, God says, tablets, the words that were on the tablets which you broke. So here God is saying, yes, my word was broken. Yes, my law was violated. But God said, I, I, notice, I, I'm not changing the rules. Again, keep in mind, God changes not, which means God's not going to condescend and somehow make concessions and compromise and say, okay, well, it's a different generation, so I guess they need a different set of rules because times have changed. It's a different generation, and therefore what, what, what was okay in this generation morally and spiritually, uh, I guess that's just not going to work for the modern generation because things are just different now. Well, listen, that, that, that's not the way God operates. In fact, one of the things, I will tell you this, that bothers many people about God is that he doesn't change, and he's not going to change. 
What his word has said, what his word has declared will always remain. And truth be told, it is applicable to every generation. The gospel has been relevant for every generation because in every generation, we are sinful, wicked people who need a savior and the forgiveness and the mercy of God. The truths of God and the will of God and the ways of God is what, as far as what is morally and spiritually acceptable and right. Those standards that God gave from the Garden of Eden and the institution of marriage, those things haven't changed. They'll never change. They're not supposed to change. They're what's intended for our benefit and our best in our lives. And God is not going to change those things in order to win a people. He is going to continue to set those things before people. And I'll tell you something. I think one of the greatest things that we can do as believers, as followers of Jesus Christ and those who say that this is the word of God is lovingly but unashamedly saying, listen, no, this is the standard. And we're not going to compromise the standard just to somehow win you over. But instead, I tell you this, people are looking. I firmly believe, especially our young generation, I believe people are looking for those who will radically say this is the truth and we believe it and we stand upon it and be willing to say that we believe this, we accept this without wavering or any change because there's something sincere and authentic in that and we live in such a fake, plastic and insincere world where people are always changing the rules and rewriting textbooks and rewriting textbooks, whether it's history or science or anything else. Well, listen, there is one book that will never be rewritten and people can build their lives on it. And here God says to Moses, despite the failure and the breaking of his word, he says, Moses, get two new tablets, come back up to me. And the words, verse one, that were on the first tablets, which you broke, those are the same words that I'm going to write on a new set. I'm not going to alter or change a word. Every truth shall continue to stand because God's word, the psalmist says, is eternal. It's settled in the heavens forever. Uh, and we can try and discard it or do away with it, but it's in the eternal heavens in God's heart and will. It cannot be altered. So Moses, come back. I'll give you another set. The, the, the heavenly printing press is about to run one more time and there's going to be no edits to what the word of God says. Come back up again. Verse two, be ready in the morning, he tells him, and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself to me there on the top of the mountain. And no man, just like the first time, remember Moses as a mediator, between God and man. He's a picture, no doubt, prophetically of Jesus Christ. Uh, God says uh, there's going to be a prophet that would come like unto Moses, we'll see. And so Moses is a picture, a representation of Christ, the mediator between God and humanity. So again, he, he would go up alone as he did the first time to serve in that mediatory role in a sense between God and the people. No man, verse 3, shall come up with you and let no man be seen throughout all the mountain. Let neither flocks nor herds feed before that mountain. Verse 4, so he cut two tablets of stone like the first ones and Moses rose early in the morning and went up to Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him and he took in his hand the two tablets of stone. Now, that must have been a really uh, you know, exciting morning. Can you imagine Moses? I mean, he has no idea what he's stepping into again other than just step by step by faith. He's just following what God's telling him. Here, this whole really 
travesty has just happened with the first time that the people came together and received the, 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 the law and he came down and it was broken and now he's saying, Moses, make another set of st- stone tablets. Come up onto the mountain. I'm going to give you my words again. And I don't know about you, but I'm, I'm sure that night and that morning as Moses got up early, there must have been a sense of maybe a little bit of anxiousness at the same time, excitement and wondering, wow, what in the world is going to go happen? I mean, how's the Lord going to lay down the law this time after what happened? And he, But again, just obediently, by faith, he rises, it says here, early in the morning. Notice, he does his part in human participation. God calls him and gives him instruction. And Moses does what we should do. He just does exactly what God tells him to. Nothing more, nothing less. And even what may seem like the mundane things, he, here he is, he's you know, chiseling out this, the stones and he's getting them ready. He gets up early in the morning. So God says, Moses, come up in the morning. Not at noon, not at 5 p.m. Okay, God wants me to get up early in the morning. That's when he wants to meet with me. So he gets up early in the morning. He makes his way now up to the top of the mountain, verse 4, as the Lord commanded him. There with the tablets of stone, in verse 5, it says, Now the Lord descended in the cloud... And stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. Now, when it says the Lord descended in the cloud, much like what we've been seeing all along, that glory cloud of the presence of God, the Shekinah glory as God would manifest himself in this way. Remember, as they were journeying through the wilderness and the same glory cloud would descend at times in the prior chapter we just saw on Moses' tent once he moved it outside the camp after he'd come back down. This is how God would manifest his presence in this way. And it says that the Lord, when he descended there in the midst of that glory cloud, it says he proclaimed... The idea is he revealed the name of Yahweh or the name of Jehovah, the name of the Lord. The idea is that what's going to happen here is God is going to give a revelation of himself to Moses. The first thing he does, he reveals to Moses who he is. Before he tells Moses what he's going to do, he just first reveals to Moses who he is. And you know what? That is the foremost priority in God's heart and really it should be the foremost priority in our lives is that God might reveal himself to us as who he is that we might know who God is even before knowing what God wants us to do or 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 how God's going to work or what our part but that we would just know God Jesus Christ said in John 17 this is eternal life that may they may know you and Jesus Christ whom you have sent This is the most critical thing. God says, Moses, come up to the mountain, stand there before me, and the Lord descends. And the first thing he does, he just proclaims his name. The idea, again, a name represents identity. When you know someone's name, the idea is the identity of a person. It's how you identify who a person is. So God wants to identify and clearly reveal who he is here again to Moses. And verse 6 says, the Lord passed before him, and proclaim, so here's God's self-revelation. God revealing himself that Moses might know more about him and who he is. He proclaimed himself as the Lord, the Lord, 
God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So here in some ways, some of the things God has already said to Moses, he now repeats. We have a little bit of an expansion in some ways as God gives a little further revelation of himself. And I like this because... Again, every time Moses is in the presence of the Lord, every time Moses has an encounter with God, God gives him a, a, another measure of revelation about himself. He sees something new, some new facet, some uh, new aspect of who God is and his nature. And the wonderful thing is, uh, that is part of the heart of the Lord and the plan of God for all of our lives as well. Ephesians chapter 2 tells us that for all of eternity, it says for the ages to come, that we will continue to see aspects of, of the measures of, of the mercy and the grace of God in the ages to come. So part of our eternal existence for the ages to come will be in the presence of God forever and ever and ever. And God is so incredible, so exhaustive and amazing in who he is. And even in the aspects of his, the depths of his grace and his mercy that for all eternity, listen, you'll never get bored in eternity. As God will continue to reveal aspects, some facet of his nature, some measure of his love or his grace or his mercy to some greater depth that will cause us to want to just fall on our face and go, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. And, and, and that there'll be this teaching, this continuous revelation as we'll see more and more. I, I think what we experience on earth now is a foreshadowing of that. As you walk with the Lord more, you spend time in his presence, you read his word through, and then you read it again. Listen, something's wrong if you're getting bored with God. <laughs> I don't see how anybody could get bored with truly seeking God because there is so much of God to discover. He's inexhaustible. You know, we, we, well, I'm getting bored in this relationship with this person I'm with. Well, listen, there's one relationship you'll never get bored in. That's to get to know God. And here Moses is in God's presence. And again, the Lord passes before him and calls himself the Lord, the Lord God. Again, indicating I am the, the God who does not change. I'm immutable. I am the same God. That's the way God revealed himself to Abraham, Isaac, to Jacob. So God's immutable. He is the Lord God, Yahweh God, who will never change. He calls himself merciful. And merciful means that God does not give us what we do deserve. And that's important for all of us because we all do things that are wrong. We err, we fail, we dishonor God, we make mistakes. And we do things in life where we should receive punishment or consequence for the mistakes we've made. And yet God says, I, I'm merciful. I don't always give you what you do deserve. Many times God restrains and he gives us the restrained version, even in the consequences for our wrongdoings. But he delights to be merciful. He delights to be kind and to withhold punishment even when it's more greatly deserved. He's merciful. And then it says he's also gracious. Now, mercy is not getting what you do deserve. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. So, uh, you know, again, mercy is not receiving the punishment that we justly are due. Grace is when we receive kindness and blessing and favor when we're totally undeserving. It's almost the, you know, a whole other level beyond mercy that God chooses to bless and be kind to us though we don't deserve anything at all. We, we would be thankful just to be 
freed from the punishment of our mistakes. But God says, look, I, I don't just want to do that. I actually want to bless you. I want to do good things in your life. I want to show favor to you and, and treat you well and give you first class treatment from the throne of the Father in heaven and do wonderful things. And, and the Lord is gracious. That is, he's disposed to being kind and benevolent and giving. He's merciful. He's gracious. He's long-suffering, which indicates his patience. It doesn't mean that God is forever frustrated and he's just holding back. That indicates that God tolerates a lot, that he's very patient and, and that he desires to, to you know, absorb a lot of what he really shouldn't have to and yet he still remains kind and gracious and merciful. He's long-suffering. He's abounding in goodness. Again, speaking of his, his great faithfulness, notice he's not just good, he's abounding in his goodness it, it overflows his goodness to humanity and truth keeping mercy for thousands he says verse 7 forgiving he's a forgiving god forgiving notice three words the bible uses here iniquity transgression and sin those are three different terms in the hebrew that all refer to mistakes and failures and rebellion in our lives the word iniquity is a hebrew term that means to be bent or to be twisted and iniquity kind of refers to what's wrong inside of every one of us. There's something within us that it's iniquitous. I don't know about if you, but if you've ever just given an honest evaluation of your own heart and your mind, that you realize, there's something really twisted about me. I just, what is, I, my heart is just bent in the wrong direction all the time. It's not like I get up in the morning and I am straight and ready to fly straight and narrow and follow the narrow path and follow the instead i find i wake up in the morning and i discover judas iscariot's taking residence inside of me again and i look in the you know i don't a lot of times i don't look in the mirror in the morning and feel like oh i'm saved i mean i'm born again angelic I, instead i feel like i'm demon possessed half that i know i'm not but there's something naturally in me that i realize i am prone to being bent to being crooked in my mind, in my heart, in my attitudes and behaviors, and, and just that nature within me is iniquitous, it's, it's bent. He says as well, transgression and sin. Now, those are two other terms that describe, again, our moral and spiritual failings. Uh, sin is just that word which means just to err or to miss the mark. It's the same term used in the New Testament. It just means to fall short meaning that you can try as much as possible to do what's right, but you're still going to stumble. You're going to make periodic mistakes, not necessarily because you want to, but just because you're flawed, because you're imperfect. We all sin, we all err and miss the mark. You can go through a day and try as hard as possible to do everything to honor the Lord in thought, word, and deed, but there are going to be times throughout the day when if you're honest and you listen to the Holy Spirit, you realize, oh man, Lord, I wish I didn't think that when that happened. Lord, I wish that attitude didn't come into my heart. Or, oh Lord, I, I mean, I, just, I wish I didn't say that. Boy, I just, if I could take back saying that in that conversation today or the way I respond, that, that's sin. We err. We all miss the mark. We all fall short of perfection because of who and what we are as sinners. The word transgression is a term that speaks of deliberate rebellion. Sin is missing the mark. I may not want to fail, but I'm going to fail once in a while. Transgression is a term in the Bible that speaks of when the line is clearly drawn in front of you and you know exactly what is right and wrong and yet you deliberately and willfully just rebel against it anyway. That's transgression, where you transgress what is right. It's a deliberate, conscious choice to rebel 
against what you know is right, even though it's clearly in front of you that that rebellion in our heart that makes us transgress deliberately. And here, notice, God's forgiveness extends to all that. Aren't you glad for that? That God's forgiveness extends to the bent, crooked perversity inside of your being that is just there that you always wrestle with. That God's forgiveness covers your sins and falterings and when you fail, even when you don't want to fail and yet you just make mistakes and slip up. And God's forgiveness even covers your transgression. And the times when I just deliberately rebel because it feels good and I just want to do it anyway. And God says, I even forgive that. I'm even willing to forgive that. The the mercy, the grace, the compassion of God and how much more when it's under the blood of Jesus Christ, not under animal sacrifices, that the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. His forgiveness is available. But notice that all of these things, God's mercy, His graciousness, His long-suffering, His abounding goodness, His forgiveness of iniquity, transgression, and sin, none of that at the same time compromises or contradicts God's holiness. God still deals with sin. God still remains completely righteous, as says the second half of verse 7, by no means clearing the guilty, visiting iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Now, we see this phraseology come up a few times regarding the nature of God, and it's difficult to fully grasp. It seems to me that when the Bible brings it up, that it is giving to us understanding and illusion, not the generational sin or God putting generational curses on family. I don't see that in the scriptures. Ezekiel chapter 18 says, the soul that sins shall surely die. So I don't see in the word of God where God says, okay, I'm going to forever and ever punish a child and have generational curses. And there are those who propagate this whole theology. What I see is God making a reference to the reality of how Iniquity is visited at times upon future third and fourth generations that sin has long-standing consequences to it. And God will allow the consequences at times of the sins of parents to unfortunately have an influence and an impact upon the next generation. In that culture, remember when they would live many times, it was not unusual for two and three and four generations to all live under the same roof. They would build an extension onto the property. So a lot of what they did, they did together. But the negative side of that is many times the sins of the parents would be then inherited and absorbed by the children. So if the father and mother were involved in these type of practices, unfortunately, many times the children would just gravitate towards those same wrong habits and they would embrace those same lifestyles. Do we not see the same thing today? Don't get me wrong. In Jesus Christ, chains can be broken and I'm glad for that. And if that's the case in your family, I encourage you to be a chain breaker. You don't have to live in the same iniquity and rebellion and, and lifestyle of sin that your parents did or your grandparents did. Be a chain breaker in Jesus and you can do that. But sadly, many times the effects and the consequences will have long-standing effects. I think of how from a national level, God always has forgiveness available for every soul that seeks it and a life change. But a lot of times, the Bible says, righteousness exalts a nation, sin is a reproach to any people, and sometimes God will allow the sins of a nation to visit it for generation after generation after generation. And and God has many ways to visit the sins of a nation upon it, whether he causes that nation to struggle militarily or, or economically or socially in some way. And sometimes God will deal with a nation and it may cause a few generations the effects 
of those sins and failures against God for those consequences to begin to work themselves out. Verse 8, when Moses has this revelation of God, look what happens. It says, Moses made haste and bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. So as Moses experiences a revelation of God in his life, look what his response is. It says he made haste. The idea is, is, is quickly, he didn't think about anything else. The first thought that came to his mind and the instant response was what? It says he bowed his head to the earth. He was humbled and he just worshipped. And I'll tell you something. When somebody has a genuine encounter with God, the natural response is going to be humble worship. Whenever I look in the scripture of somebody who has a genuine experience with God, read throughout the Bible. When somebody has an experience with God or an encounter with Jesus Christ, there's something of the you know, prideful humanity and the arrogance or concern about self-image or what. That just goes out the window, man. And they're just depleted of anything and they don't care about being on their face they don't care about just humbling themselves before God and they just they, they can't hold back from worshiping. And I think many times it's a true testament to whether or not we're having a genuine encounter with God because the fruit and the byproduct of that typically is always seen in this way. Moses has an experience with God. He's on his face in humility and he's just worshiping God. It's the only thing he knows to do in response. It's the natural reaction or the natural response to an encounter with God. He's on his face, worshiping God. In verse 9, then he says, notice next, as he's worshiping, he starts to pray. He says, if I've now found grace in your sight, O Lord, let my Lord, I pray, go among us. Again, he's back to this same prayer again. Lord, please, your presence be with us. We need you to go among us. We need your presence. Even though, he says, honestly, again, we are a stiff-necked people. And pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us as your inheritance. Do you notice as well Moses' heart and humility as he prays? He doesn't say, Lord, they are a stiff-necked people. <laughs> Lord, those people. Here I am up here worshiping and hearing your word and receiving direction from you and praying and seeking you. And Those people are so stiff-necked. They're always doing what's wrong. They're, and Lord, would you forgive them of their sin? Instead, he, notice he, he joins himself together with them. He says, forgive our sin. We are a stiff-necked people. We pardon our iniquity and our sin. And he, and he associates with them. I think there's tremendous humility in that. And it shows you a, a real heart attitude that is wonderful and I think very pleasing to God. And I think a lot of that stems from Moses just realizing whether or not he was actively directly involved in what they were doing or not. Somehow, I think someone like Moses' heart, Moses recognized, you know what? I have the same potential as all those people down at the bottom of that hill. And rather than me look down my nose or say, you idol worshipers, you, instead he realizes, you know what? I haven't maybe done that yet, but boy, I sure have the exact same capacity as all those people. So, Lord, us, we're stiff-necked. Forgive us. Have mercy on us. It solves nothing to point the finger. And, and, but he says, Lord, us as a whole, we're associated together. All of us have this same weakness and failure before you. And verse 10, notice God answers his prayer. And he answers his prayer with tremendous grace and mercy and goodness and forgiveness 
because he offers to reestablish the covenant, the covenant that they had just ruined. They had just defiled God's covenant and God says, I'm going to reestablish my covenant. Verse 10, he says to him, Behold, Moses, I will make a covenant before all your people. Look at this, verse 10. This is a demonstration of verse 6 and 7, the fact that God is merciful, gracious, long-suffering, abounding in goodness, keeping mercy and forgiving sin and iniquity. Look, look what he says. Moses, not only am I going to reestablish the covenant with you, but before all your people, I will do marvels such as were not done in all the earth. The idea of marvels is wonders, things that people are going to marvel at. God's saying, I'm going to do such an amazing work among those people. He says, people will be left astonished when they see the work that I did among that group of people. He says, I'm going to do marvels as as were never done in all the earth, nor in any nation before, and all the people among whom you are shall see, I love the, the language, shall see the work of the Lord, for it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. Man, to think that God declares that, and does he declare that because the people deserve it? Not at all. He declares that as the result of humble intercession, of one person, of Moses, humbly interceding. God says, you know what? That, I was just looking to answer a prayer like that. I was just looking to answer a prayer where I could be gracious and, and show the abounding goodness and mercy and, 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 and all those things. I was just, so he says, you know what, Moses? I'm going to take you up on that request. I'm going to reestablish my covenant. I am going to do marvels. And he says, everyone shall see, I love the words, the work of the Lord. And you know, when it's the work of the Lord, it is always going to be an awesome thing that he does. When it's a work of the Lord, God can do awesome things with people, whether it's with a family, whether it's with a group of people, whether it's the congregation of God's people, whether it's with a nation, God can do a work when it's a work of the Lord and it is an awesome thing that he can do. And maybe tonight, I don't know, maybe that's a word of the Lord to encourage you that he would say, look, you're going to see the work of the Lord and maybe God would say to you, it's an awesome thing that I'm going to do with you. You watch. When it's not your work anymore, it's my work. There's an awesome thing that I'm going to do with you that will cause everyone to marvel as I do my work through and among your life. Verse 11, he says, Observe what I command you this day. Behold, I'm driving out from before you the Amorite and the Canaanite, the Hittite and the Perizzite and the Hivite and the Jebusite. These were the Canaanite enemies in the land of Canaan where they were going. And verse 12, God says, Take heed to yourself, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land where you're going, and lest it be a snare in your midst. But you shall destroy their altars, break their sacred pillars, and cut down their wooden images, for you shall worship no other god, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of that land, and they play the harlot with their gods and make sacrifice to their gods, and one of them invites you to eat of his sacrifice, and you take of his daughters for your sons, and his daughters then play the harlot with their gods and make your sons play the harlot with their gods. So God here gives instruction. He says, listen, I'm going to be gracious to you, and I'm going to do a work among you, but God says, I need your heart to be consecrated to me. 
And God says, I'm jealous for your attention and your devotion and your dedication. So God here warns them very strongly, as he will many a times going forward, that they not allow themselves to get caught up in the idolatrous affairs in the land where they were going. Because there would be a severe temptation to do that. And God knew of the wicked practices of all these Canaanite nations mentioned there in verse 11 and how in verse 12 they had false altars and sacred pillars that they would uh, do their you know, fertility and, and uh, rites to and so forth, the Asherah poles and the wooden images. And the Lord says, listen, take heed to yourself. And he says, don't make a covenant with the inhabitants of that land. You're going there because those people are wicked and iniquitous and God wanted to work among them and in some senses use Israel to bring judicial judgment upon them for their wickedness of hundreds of years that God had forewarned them about. But God says, when you are among them and ministering to them, be a witness to them. But God says, but don't make a covenant and connect with them in a way whereby through your companionship and too much interaction, you start to embrace their ways and you begin to worship their idols and follow their gods and they entice you into their sinful practices he says don't make a covenant with the inhabitants of land the idea is a close partnership in fact god warns them in verse 13 that they should look destroy the altars the pillars and the wooden images god says listen don't go into the land and admire their things don't make a museum of them and just hey remember god says no obliterate them destroy them be very severe to eradicate these things from the land because why they were sources of temptation and god says sometimes you need to eradicate every source of temptation in a very practical way make the idea is, is as paul says in, in romans chapter uh, 13 he says make no provision for the flesh because see if they left a little provision available guess what the flesh would do it's what do we say? Iniquitous. <laughs> it's bent. And guess what? If there is an altar laying around that I can go worship at, then my flesh is going to in a crooked way be inclined to incuriosity or temptation as I'm prompted. Hey, why don't you I'm just try it? I mean, you can still do your Jehovah God thing. But why don't you try this altar too? You can still do that, but just, just try this too. Come on, if you love me, try it. If you're my friend and you want to be cool like all the other Jebusites, come on, this is what we do here in Hivite country. Do you want to act like a Jebusite when you're in Hivite country? Come on. Act like one of us. And see, it's just a little pole. And, and, and he's, God says, no, don't do that. Listen, we are to be in the world, the Bible says, but not of the world. We have to have relationships with unsaved people and those who are pagan and don't know our God and follow him, but we are to be an influence to them. And if we begin to establish relationships whereby they are influencing us, we're on a very slippery slope to backsliding and to failure and to really just devastating our own lives and making a horrible testimony to them that's many times irreparable. So God here warns them against making covenant relationships, close affinity with them, and, and then accidentally, he says, you'll end up embracing and sacrificing to their gods and participating in their rituals. He even warns, verse 16, that there would be no intermarriage with these other pagan nations in verse 16. Why? It wasn't a racial or an ethnic thing. It was a spiritual thing. Notice God says that if you take his daughters, they begin to play the harlot with their gods. It's like spiritual adultery. 
So God's very clear in His Word that that it's not an issue of ethnicity or or race or any of these kind of that, that that the believer is not to be unequally yoked with an unbeliever from a marital sense. That we are to join in covenant relationship maritally with those who have the same convictions and belief and love and serve the same God that we do. So our hearts are not pulled away. And here God gives this instruction to the parents to protect their children, to prohibit their children from doing that. You know, God help us to pray and, and to be actively involved in our children's lives, our sons and daughters and those who are younger among our fellowship that we would care about who they marry and not sit back passively as unfortunately I see happen a lot of times in the church. And at times I want to take somebody who is married to a non-believer or who was married to a non-believer and bring them and say to the person, listen, what seems really wonderful right now, trust me, I'm living it. And I don't care how good looking they are, how wonderful it seems. You have no idea what you're going to enter into if you marry this person who, again, is not of the same spiritual inclination as you are. And here God was prohibiting it from the earliest days with Israel and God has not changed. Verse 17, he reminds them, you shall make no molded gods for yourselves. And no doubt they had just committed the issue with the golden calf. And God's clearly, and no more of that golden calf stuff. And verse 18 down through verse 26, you'll notice, is really just a reiteration of a lot of what we've studied already. So we won't say much about it. God's just reiterating portions of his law and his covenant, which we've already studied in prior chapters. Again, he says, the feast of unleavened bread, which is Passover, you shall keep seven days. You shall eat unleavened bread as I commanded you in the appointed time in the month of Abib, which was in the spring. For in the month of Abib is when you came out of Egypt. All that open the womb, God reminds them, are mine, every male of the firstborn among your livestock, whether ox or sheep. But the firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb. And if you'll not redeem him, then you shall break his neck. And all the firstborn of your sons you shall redeem. They were to make the redemption offering in place of the firstborn of their animals as well as their children. The idea is God says it belongs to me, the first fruits as your provider and the source of everything. And then he says, verse 20, and none shall appear before me empty-handed. The idea is empty-handed before God in worship, that they were to bring their act of devotion and sacrifice unto the Lord. Verse 21, God reminds them of the Sabbath, adding in another thought or two. He says, six days you shall work. But on the seventh day you shall rest. Notice God adds in here, in plowing time and in harvest you shall rest and you shall observe the feast of weeks. That's the feast of Pentecost. The first fruits of wheat harvest and the feast of ingathering, which is the feast of tabernacles at the year's end. And notice if you would, verse 21, that little phrase as I just read, God's reminding again, observe the Sabbath. And notice he inserts here this statement, make sure you observe the Sabbath rest, that day of worship and rest unto God. He says, in plowing time and in harvest. What do you think God's getting to there? He's saying, look, even at your busiest times, even at your busiest times, there should always still be time set aside for me. There's this rhythm of work and worship, work and worship. And God says, listen, even in plowing time, very busy time, even in harvest time, very busy time, he says, you shall still rest. You, again, because the propensity would be, look, well, this is just a really busy time. And, and I mean, 
God wouldn't want us to be a poor steward, would he? I mean, if we harvest one more day, then you know we'll be able to we'll have a few extra bucks and, and we'll be able to take care of it and we'll be able to tithe a little extra. Wouldn't that be what God wants? And God says, No, I want your heart. And you need to rest. And you need to unplug and you need refreshment. And there needs to, even in your busiest hours, God says, You should never be too busy for me. You should never become too busy for worship. That should always hold a priority. Jesus said what in Matthew 6, 33? Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these other things will be added unto you. So God says, even in your busiest hours, that's no excuse to say, well, look, you just, you don't understand and, and, and it's just a busy season. And, and God says, no, that should never, ever take precedence over obeying my word of giving time and attention to me. In fact, look what he says, verse 23, three times in a year, all your men shall appear before the Lord God of Israel. Again, the, the injunction, the requirement, three times a year, the men, at least 20 years old, or the men were required to observe the annual feasts of Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles to go up and to notice, verse 23, appear before the Lord. Those feasts were ways of remembering and reflecting upon who God was and what God did. They were times of worship. They were times of reflecting upon God, spending time with God and his people. And again, I can't emphasize enough because God repetitively says the word that the men were required to appear. The men were. The men were to take the lead spiritually. The men, even if the whole family couldn't get there, the men were to say, but I've got to get there. Because how in any way can I lead my family in the ways of God if as a man I don't know God myself? If I'm not spending time with God myself, if I'm not being refreshed and renewed spiritually, how can I give anything of spiritual content or credibility to help lead my family in the ways of God? The injunction was very strong upon the men in the culture. It's so important for us to see, gentlemen, because so many times that's inverted, even to this day in the church still. You know, again, whether it's attending church, whether it's you know uh, going to retreats, it's, it's amazing how quickly women have such an inclination. They want to go. They'll make the time. But so often, the men don't. And, and God says, that's backwards. It's completely backwards. And, and as we raise up a younger generation of men, we've got to teach them this. We've got to let them sense the reality, not to be passive about it, but in an active way to make them understand, listen, you have got to be serious in your walk with God because your walk with God is not going to just be about you, but you have to someday lead a wife and to lead children. So you must be, listen, I, I tell young ladies and I tell my daughters this all the time, if, if a young man can't lead himself, don't ever think that he can lead you. If he can't lead his own relationship with God, if he can't on his own initiative say, I want to read my Bible, I want to pray, I'm going to go to church, I should go to church, I, I want to seek God, it's lunacy for a young woman to think, oh, well, he'll be a good spiritual leader. No, if he needs to lead himself first because once you then lead yourself, then you have the resources by the grace of God to be able to then lead family members, wives, children, others. And here the men three times a year were to go. Look what God says, verse 24. For I will cast out the nations before you, enlarge your borders, 
And neither will any man covet your land when you go up to appear before the Lord your God three times in the year. Now, this is an amazing promise in verse 24 God gives to them. He says, three times a year the men have to go up and appear before me for the annual weekly feast. Three times a year they were to unplug, leave their fields, put down their plows, go and spend time with God and his people three times a year for a week in this annual remembrance on three different occasions during the year. Now, logic would say, wait a minute. If we leave our families, that's gonna, our families might be vulnerable. What if pagan people come in and attack our families while we're gone? We could leave our families in jeopardy and in danger. And, and look what God says here. I'll cast out the nations before you and enlarge your borders and no man will covet your land when you go up to appear. What's God saying? God's saying, listen, if you honor me, I'll take care of you. God says, you do what I ask and I'll cover things on your home front. God is saying there is never a time when you're going to do what I ask you to do when I am going to not come through and honor things on your end as well. God says, listen, I'll, I'll protect your family. While you're away, I know it seems illogical and they could be, but God says, I'll, I got your back on this, God says. And it doesn't matter if God talks that way. He talks that way to me, maybe, because I'm not super educated. He just talks in my language. Lord, if I do that, that's kind of risky. If I obey you in this area, Lord, what about my family? And, and sometimes we think, well, man, if I obey God in this area, there might be some risk or jeopardy. Lord, if, if I don't take that extra shift to overtime, or Lord, I, I take this step of faith and I'm going to put my family in, and what if I leave my family in jeopardy as I follow you in this thing that you clearly told me? And God says, listen, I got your back. You just do what I ask you to do. I got your back. I'll take care of you. I'll protect you. I'll provide and, and make sure that I cover things as you go up and appear to be before me. God says, as you worship and obey me, I will make sure to honor and take care of whatever that means in your life. Verse 25, he says, you shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with leaven nor the sacrifice, the feast of Passover until morning. The first of your first fruits you shall bring to the house of the Lord your God and then again, this phrase we saw before, you shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. And we talked about that the first time we looked at it together. Verse 27, the Lord said to Moses, write these words for according to the tenor of these words, I've made a covenant with you and with Israel. And so he was there with the Lord 40 days and 40 nights. He neither ate bread nor drank water. And he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. So again, as the first time, Moses is in the presence of God. Look at, at verse 28 there. For another 40 days. And here the Bible specifically says he neither ate bread nor drank water. So for a 40-day fast of bread and water, God miraculously sustains him. And, and I emphasize the word. Let me say it again. Miraculously sustains him. Don't try this at home. Okay? Don't try and be super spiritual and tell, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fast from bread and water. For, listen, the, the, we don't see this ever repeated again in the Bible. And it says food and water. Could you possibly go 40 days without food? Yes. You can only go so many days without water. Moses was sustained miraculously two times by being directly in the presence of God. Somehow, God miraculously sustained him. The Bible says man doesn't live by bread alone. Somehow Moses was miraculously sustained by the presence of the God without food or water for 40 days on two different occasions. It was a miracle. Clearly, it was a miracle of God. 
I think it may be in some ways almost a foreshadowing of what we may one day experience when we are in the eternal realm and we're in the presence of God and we're sustained by the presence of God alone. That God's presence is what sustains us when we're there, when we have these new glorified eternal bodies. It's very likely, again, we see that there is food when we read the book of Revelation, there is a food source to be eaten in the eternal dimension, but it doesn't seem that food is there from necessity as much as food is there maybe just for enjoyment. So, uh, very interesting. Here Moses miraculously sustained by God while he's there in his presence, his presence sustaining him for those 40 days a second time. And verse 29 says, It was so when Moses came down from Mount Sinai, the two tablets of the testimony were in his hand when he came down from the mountain, that Moses, look at this, he did not know that the skin of his face shone while he talked with him, that is, talked with God. So as Moses comes down, his, it says the skin of his face is shining. The Hebrew literally indicates beams or horns of light are radiating from his face. So he's basically he's like glowing. <laughs> he comes down and he's glowing. Why? Because he has just been in God's presence. So he's reflecting the glory of God in some way. He's radiating, but he doesn't know that it's going on. Notice it says he didn't even realize it. So when Aaron, verse 30, and all the children of Israel saw Moses, behold, the skin of his face shone. Now they'd never seen... You know, LED lights or headlights. This is, this is pretty crazy what they're saying here. He's reflecting the glory of God. They were afraid to come near him. What is going on? And Moses called to them and Aaron and the rulers of the congregation returned to him and Moses talked with them. And afterward, all the children of Israel came near and he gave them the commandments that all the Lord had spoken with them on Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put now a veil on his face. But whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would take the veil off until he came out and he would come out and speak to the children of Israel whatever had been commanded. And then whenever the children of Israel saw the face of Moses, that his skin of Moses' face shone, then Moses would put the veil on his face again until he went in to speak with God. So this practice now develops where Moses comes down from the mountain this time, having been in God's presence, and his face is just radiating. He's reflecting something of God's incredible glory. He's, he's glowing in a sense. He's radiating with God's presence and his, his glory shining forth because he's been in God's presence. And as he comes down the mountain, now it says he has to put a veil over his face. And when he goes into God's presence, he takes the veil off to, to just be direct in, in focusing and, and fellowship with God. But when he's with the people, he puts the veil over his face in this moment. Now, I'm going to leave you this for thought and homework because, of course, I want to encourage you to be Bible students. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul describes from his spiritual perspective what was going on here. We would look at this and think, wow, the reason Moses is putting a veil over his face is because the brightness is so intimidating that the people are just terrified of Moses. So he's trying to, okay, well, well, let me just kind of put a little sunscreen on here for you so I don't blind you. And, and, and when Paul says, look, it's not he was trying to keep the people from being blinded by the glory. It actually says he was trying to keep the people from seeing that the glory of his face would continually fade. That it wasn't a glory that stemmed from within him. It wasn't a glory that came from the old covenant. 
It was a glory that came from God alone as the source. So when he left God's presence, the glory would then begin to fade. And Moses didn't want people to see that the glory was going out, so he actually put the veil of his face, Paul says, for that purpose. And it becomes a picture of how the glory of the Old Covenant, the law and the Old Covenant, was fading and passing away, but there's the glory of a greater covenant, the New Covenant. Through faith in Jesus Christ and the Spirit of God indwelling our lives and having direct fellowship with Jesus face to face, that there's a greater glory that's to be experienced. 2 Corinthians 3 describes some of those things as Paul gives, in a sense, an amplification of what was happening and an explanation of it. I encourage you, maybe tonight, tomorrow morning, read through that, compare the texts. See how it speaks of these things. He even speaks there as he goes into the fourth chapter of how a veil lies over the, the hearts and minds of those who don't believe until when they turn to the Lord, that veil is taken away. He talks about how we, he says, with unveiled faces, beholding the glory of the Lord, are changed into his image by glory to greater glory by the Spirit of the Lord. That There's a greater Experience for us who can go directly into the presence of God and behold Jesus. And as we're in his presence, we're changed. That's how we're transformed. Think about this. Moses was dramatically affected. Why? Because he had been in God's presence. Because he had been in God's presence. There is something to be said about being in the presence of God. There's something to be said about being in the presence of Jesus. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says that that's where change comes from. Hey, I want to change. There's a lot about my life that I want to change, but I can't change myself. But the Bible makes it very clear that when we are in the presence of the Lord, there's something powerful that happens, that change comes into our life, and our lives are altered. Moses' appearance was altered because he was in the Lord's presence. Hey, people knew Moses had been in the presence of the Lord. When you're in the presence of the Lord, people will know. There'll be a difference in your life as you spend time in his presence.